Hey, uh, if you could grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 5 uh, for the last time this week. We're going to get into Matthew 6 tomorrow. We have been crawling through the Sermon on the Mount, and it has been challenging, and uh, I've got a lot of things to say about that. Before we even get into that, I want to uh, I want to just mention something. As a church body, you probably know this, uh, uh, those of you watching at home. When we have people pass away in our church, um, when we know people who are close to us that pass away, um, there's no perfect words for that. If you've had a close loved one pass away, you know that it takes time to grieve, to process, to mourn. But the Bible tells us that we do that together. And uh, for those of you that, that could not be at the funeral services on Friday, um, I, I want us to just take a moment to pray over the Fick family, to thank the Lord for the um, for the life that Teresa had and, and the impact it had on all of us. Man, if you if we could just have people raise their hands on, on people who are impacted by her, it, it I wish you could have just been here on Friday. Just all the people that filled this room that had been moved and touched by her and, and not just by her. If she were here she would say, No, 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 look at Jesus. Look what Jesus has done. And I I don't I don't even have words for it, but I want to pray because there's such a weird place of celebration and mourning and suffering and joy and we're all in this together as one body and a lot of you might be saying i don't even have words for that i love Therese, i love the trick fam fake family and i just i don't have words we we have a presence together that's what we do we're one body and we're suffering celebrating and making sense of this together and as all of us also might have people we know that are in the hospital that are sick that have passed away in the last year none of us know none of us know when when your time is um I will do more of your funerals this year. That's just the way it goes. And so if you don't know Jesus, uh, <laughs> Therese would want you to know that, that today's your day, man. Find out who Jesus is. God's put you watching at home for a reason. God's put you in this room for a reason. Before we even talk about this hard stuff about loving your enemies, it's not going to make any sense to you if you don't know Jesus. And we can't celebrate someone's death if they don't know Jesus. <laughs> But when they know Jesus, we say, man, there's hope because they're passing on to eternity and we get to see them later. And so uh, for those of us who, who know Christ, you know, we're walking through all that together. If you don't know Christ, let's talk about it today. Let's get that settled. But let's pray. Father, I pray that your word would bear its weight on us this morning and that we would hear, have, have ears to hear what you have for us. Uh, we specifically, as, as your body, as one body in Christ, we pray for the Fick family, knowing that Teresa is with you. And we know that you tell us you're making all things new. <sighs> Thinking about when Therese said to me that the stories are all true. God, we know all your stories, everything you've given us in your word, it's all true. We believe it, we're trying to make sense of it. And I pray for those who don't know you, that, uh, that we would come to know you today. That they would give their life to you and trust in you. I pray for our church body as we celebrate and mourn and make sense of... Um, passing into eternity and, and all those things that are heavy for us. You tell us that you comfort us with the comfort of Christ and that uh, that allows us to comfort others in Christ. And so I pray that we would see that cycle of comfort in our church through you, Jesus. Be with the Fick family as they process each day now. Show us how to be suffering alongside them, bearing this burden with them in love in you. Amen. If you could grab your Bible, like I said, we'll be in Matthew 5. Um, I'm going to do this every week, and I'm going to say that I'm going to do it every week. You'll never get sick of it. What, what am I going to write? Kingdom. kingdom. Why? Why are we writing kingdom? Because 
when you think of Jesus, you think of kingdom. It's just, it's got to happen, man. Like, I, if you've been in church your whole life and you think you know Jesus, if I talk about giving your life to Jesus, and you're like, oh yeah, I got that on lockdown. I gave my life to Jesus when I was four. been baptized twice. You don't even know. I'm so Jesus, you don't even know, brah. If you're not thinking about the kingdom, you don't know Jesus. It's just the facts. Jesus didn't come just to die for your personal sins. Jesus came to teach us about the kingdom and to make sense of the world that we're completely missing. Jesus came to die for all of our sins to make the world right. The gospel is not just about your personal sins, although that's included. The gospel is about how the whole world is being made right in Jesus Christ, and that's called the kingdom. And so when Jesus says, hey, this is the gospel of the kingdom, this is what he's all about. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're called the gospels, right? And this is the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus taught. It says he went around teaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so we've got to be thinking about this. If we're just thinking about Jesus, then we get into these weird extremes of like, oh, well, he was the son of God, so he gets a pass, so I'll never be perfect by Jesus. And so I'm just a sinner saved by grace, so I can say cuss words when I want and be mad at people in Walmart when they're slow and whatever, and I never have to be accountable to anything. That, that stinks. That's not what we're calling to. Jesus says there is a king and a kingdom, and if you believe I have all authority and I'm with you always, then you'll be my disciple. To be his disciple is to live in the kingdom. It's here now. You can choose to believe it or not, right? But whether or not you choose to believe, it doesn't make it any different. It's here. Just like you can think the sky's purple. That doesn't change the fact that it's blue, right? It's just the way it is. So anyway, there's that uh, kingdom. Uh, and we've been going through these hard things that he says. I mean, he's been going through these six phrases back to back. You've heard it said, but I say. He's talking about certain things in the Torah and how they were interpreted in the day. And he's trying to get people to understand, listen, you have a fundamental problem. Each one of you, you have a heart problem. I have a heart problem. I take the things of God and I twist it. We have this scarcity mentality that we talked about, how we want to sow this suit of fig leaves so we can hide from God, so that we can not have to take responsibility for our rebellion, so we keep doing these things to gain control. We keep trying to climb our own personal ladders and hide who we really are. We redefine divorce, we redefine marriage, we redefine love, we redefine uh, lust. We do all these things to justify how we want to live. And Jesus says, the issue isn't you following the law. The issue is your heart. You have a problem of heart. And if you don't have your heart changed, then you can't possibly please God. In fact, he goes as far to say, be perfect as your Father is perfect. And that phrase should give all of us concern because we're not perfect. And even those of us who are sitting here and saying, well... I'm, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Jesus said, be perfect as your father is perfect. Now we have a problem. And I'm not stepping into legalistic ground and saying you all need to button your shoes and tie your tie or whatever phrase makes sense. I'm saying that Jesus says things that are very difficult for us. And so we want to make sense of them. Last week, we talked about the law of retaliation, the tit-for-tat stuff, right? Um, flex talionis. Man, it'd be cool if I remembered Latin off the top of my head. And we talked about how we all have this posture. I mean, it happened to you this week. Something happened, and you thought, justice is mine. I'm going to figure it out. And it's interesting that justice typically looks like what benefits people that look just like you and make your life most convenient. All the fights for justice we get on tend to ultimately circle back to benefit us. And I think that's really fascinating that justice all through history can be painted by that particular culture at that time and what they think is most important. But God said, now there's a justice that's beyond that. And it looks a whole lot like mercy. It looks a whole lot like a bleeding Savior on a cross dying for other people. And so last week we talked about how love people the way Jesus called us to do. It's going to go above our pride, turning the other cheek, right? Uh, it's going to go beyond uh, 
our possessions. Someone takes your tunic, you give them your cloak as well, and it's going to involve loving people beyond our time and conveniences. Someone asking us to walk a mile, we walk two miles. Jesus says, loving God, the kingdom, is more important than these things. And we talked about last week, just in case you missed it, and to cover all that, we talked about the difficulty in those personal situations and how someone runs into the back of your truck, we could have the story of, oh, you know what, I just paid for it and told them Jesus loves you, and we got to like, such a great thing. Good job, Brother Brian, for giving them all this money and having it hit your insurance and all this. What a kind thing to do. Or we'd say, no, no, no. Like, they messed up my truck. You know, gave a Christian track. They broke my truck. That's just, you're right. Because God gave And all of us would just swoon one way or the other. We would just do things in such a situation. Oh, the will of God in this situation. The truth is, you don't know. Just look at me. You don't know. And you're going to justify God's will. You're going to justify what God wants. You're going to do. You are conveniently privileged to get the life that you want, and then you ram God's will in it to say, oh, I just worked out, and it's comfortable for me, and that's fine. And then Jesus says, Be perfect as your Father is perfect. And that involves doing all these things that are not retaliation, and that just stinks. Let's skip over that. Please bring Lord's Prayer into the next couple weeks because it's easier to talk about the Lord's Prayer than this love your enemy junk, right? And so we want this to bear its weight on us because it's hard. We don't know what to do with this. And so we have to say, ah, I have a heart problem. I need to be poor in spirit because I don't know what to do with this. And this should lead us back to the feet of Jesus, recognize that he's king. Not to the feet of David, who's trying to explain everything to you, right? Not to the feet of your grandma, who taught you how to worship the Lord or whoever. We come back to Jesus because he's the only one who makes sense of any of this. Because I can't stand up here for... 30 minutes, 45, I've never preached for 30 minutes in my life, but uh, I can't stand up here for any chunk of time and teach everything that means to love your enemies. And so give me grace as we try to walk through this, because you all are going to think of a situation in which loving your enemies looks different than what we're talking about, and we'll try to justify it. We need to read what the Word says. I'm going to read these verses again, and we're going to walk through them. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, some translations say pagans, do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, Jesus starts off saying, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus is quoting from the Torah, right? That's his thing. Does anyone know what he's quoting from? That's okay. That's okay. Anyone have a footnote? No? No? Ah, probably Leviticus. Look at that. We're going to pull it up. Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19.18. What's missing from that? Ah, hate. Hate your enemy. Someone said it quick. Man, you guys are fast this morning. Uh, I'm getting chalk all over me. My goodness. Oh, that didn't help at all. That's okay. Chalk. Uh, <laughs> this is, oh man. So many of you know my personality. You're just like, of course. Like, what, but why wouldn't he do that? Oh man. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it means I'm working hard. 
doing. We're doing work up here, folks. Anyway, he does, it doesn't say hate your enemy. The verse just says, Jesus quoted this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Where is it that you hate your enemy, Jesus? It's not in the Torah. You can scour all of the Torah, and you will not find it. In the your enemy doesn't do it, right? Western approach or Roman approach to how we conquer the world. Hate your enemies, squash them. So where does Jesus get this? Um, Jesus specifically says, you've heard it said. I think this is really interesting because you, you start bearing into this. Some of the times we did this a little bit with divorce too. We had to talk about how, hey, this is what, what uh, this rabbi said and this rabbi said Hillel and the other guy, I can't think of his name right now. But we had to look at Shemai and we had to look at the different rabbis. So right now Jesus is stepping into a culture where there are a lot of things said. You, this doesn't make sense to us because none of us here have memorized the 613 Hebrew laws. Anyone? No. Great. Well, on top of that, they were so concerned, the religious leaders, of breaking the 613 laws that they added to it. An example of that is there were 40 laws additionally they added to the one law to observe the Sabbath. So, one rabbi said, you want to observe the Sabbath? Here's 40 laws so that you come so close to observing it and so far away from not breaking the Sabbath that you never even break that command. You follow me? So they had laws on the laws. It would be like you saying, you know what, I'm going to insert something in my car that every time I go a hair over the speed limit, my brakes are going to slam. And, and then on top of that, I'm also going to, every time I come, uh, I'm even driving on the road, I'm going to program a robot in my brain to make sure that I see all speed limit signs as five miles less. What a weird analogy. Where am I going with this? We would add things on, though, to force ourselves to obey the law. You see what I'm saying? We don't do that. We're much more in the like of, man, if it says 65, I'm driving 70 all the way to Springfield until I get past, you know, what, uh, what's it, uh, um, Big Bass Road, then it turns to 70 miles per hour. I'm driving 75 all the way to Springfield. Tr come at me, bro. Anyway, that's what we do. We break the law, we don't think about this. So their idea was law worship. This is a big tension in their day was, hey, you are abusing the law, you're twisting it, you're making it what you want, but also you're worshiping these laws and not the giver of the law. Alright, we worship the created things, not the creator. So apparently Jesus had seen this practice, this twist, that they started to say, hey, we're going to love our enemy so much that, or love our neighbor so much that we are going to hate our enemy. And that became part of it. I had some quotes from some rabbis that I was going to show you guys where this is seen in the Qumran and stuff. It's not, it's, we cut it for now. But uh, it happened a lot. Let's look, when we talk about this, we want to look at the context here. Because this begs the question, who is my neighbor? Right? If God told you to love your neighbor as yourself, you'd say, okay, who is myself? Ooh, existentialism. Okay. Oh, me. I'm David. Hi. Hello. I'm myself. Okay, I can love myself. Who is my neighbor? present culture where you love everybody and you accept everyone. We think, oh, we're so loving. We welcome everyone. Everyone's accepted. Stop. Who is your neighbor? Because I teach my kids to say, love your neighbor yourself. And we have had a very big confusion on our physical neighbors who live next door to us and the neighbor of scripture. It's a difficult concept. Look at context. Verses Leviticus 19, starting in verse 15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slander among your people, Israelites, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. 
you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Based on this context, who's your neighbor? Almost. We'll get there. Who's this? Israel. Who's he talking to? So your neighbor, your people, your brother, sons of your own people, Israel. In this context, bear with me, in this context, Israel, right? And so there's a tension here. Wait a minute. God told us to love my neighbors, myself. Does that include the tax collector who leaves all of us from Rome? And now they're, are, are they really even Jewish anymore? Like, come on. They're no longer my neighbor. Rome's not Rome. It's my neighbor, right? So I don't have to love them, qualify. Right now, again, churchy people, you're like, ah, but I will love everybody. Stop. There are people you don't love. We do this all the time. So think about this situation. We don't use this language because we want to be such a culture of inclusion and love. And stop. All the time you reduce people in your mind to not love them or treat them how God wants you to, right? This is them just arguing, frankly, well, God, does God want us to whatever? They have been in oppression for three times the amount of time frame that America has existed. We are a baby country. Those of you who think this is the most important thing in the world, Rome, Babylon, Assyria, way older, way more powerful, way bigger than America, okay? History, if it repeats itself, things come and go. I'm not against America. Don't put that on me. Don't email me about it. I'm just saying if you look at the aggregate of all history, things come and go. And so when you, if we got taken over by China in the next 10 years and our great-grandkids lived 40, 50 years in oppression and then their grandkids and they were looking at 300 years of oppression and they were looking at how do I follow God, they would start seeing certain people as their enemies because they were under oppression. They're being destroyed. They're being stepped on. I thought God gave us this nation, and now it's uh, ruled by China. You understand what I'm saying? We would have this tension. So they're quite trying to qualify, who is my neighbor? Is Rome my neighbor? Some of the rabbis would move on in Leviticus 19 and add these verses as they were teaching and understanding. Okay, who is my neighbor? Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. When a stranger, an immigrant sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger, the immigrant, who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Lord your God. Ah, now we're getting close to this neighbor idea. Now this includes a whole lot more people, right? But does this include Rome? Does this include some culture that starts trampling you? This isn't, I'm not just trying to walk you into some weird historical conundrum, right? This is important for the context because the hearers of this day, for us even, we need to start thinking, wait, who's my neighbor? We can't possibly. More importantly, we have to think through who our enemy is. and says, no, 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 I'm not just going to explain who your neighbor is. I'm going to say, hey, you love your enemy. You love your enemy. And I hope those words bear the weight on you that they should, because in a culture that tries to pretend we don't have any enemies, there are people who hack you off on social media every day. There are people, if you could just flush their existence from your life, and you do in your mind every day, you would. You just get rid of them. You hate them. And you don't use those words 
You don't say they're your enemies because that's too harsh, man. Peace. Love people, brah. But in practice, you're not loving them. And so Jesus doesn't say tolerate your enemy. Jesus doesn't say give $100 to your enemy. He says to love your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. We're going to deal with this verse 45 real quick because we've got to camp on 44 for a bit. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. This isn't a qualifying ticket punch. This isn't saying, once you do this, boom, now you are a son of the Father in heaven. Check. You've got it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, because... You are sons of your father. Because you are Jews, Israelites, uh, uh, proselytes who worship the Lord, because you worship the Father in heaven, then you love your enemy. And that's an important qualification for us as the church. This is why Paul, all the time, you read, he writes, in Christ. If you ever see my emails or my text message or sometimes my prayer, we'll say, in Christ a lot. People in our church use the phrase, in Christ. Why do we do that? I believe Paul constantly used the phrase, in Christ, as a qualifying understanding to people to say, you are in Christ now. Of course you don't live this way, because you're in Christ. And when you have a repentance, the transformation of your mind, when you change you don't live these ways. You repent. And Jesus is saying here, if you are sons of the Father, which all these people listening would believe to some degree they are, even if they're excluded, Jesus just said, you are welcome into the kingdom through me. Because you are sons of the Father, you love your enemies. Who's your enemy? Rome. All these people who seem absolutely unworthy. Man, I wish we had time to read the next story right after Sermon on the Mount. Jesus heals a centurion's sick servant. And it's just a perfect example of the story. Read it. That's your extra credit. Read Matthew 8. Jesus immediately follows up on loving your enemies by healing someone who absolutely doesn't deserve to be healed and could only negatively impact Jesus' life. He does it anyway. Don't have time for that. Jesus says we're to love your enemies. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Every time. Every time. It'll never stop. I feel like I've done that before up here, but it's like, ah, man. Love is just, whew. you've heard me talk about this before, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get used to it. I'm going to start getting fired up. Love is the most frustrating word in the English language. There's a few words that are really annoying, like balm and moist and whew, ointment. Uh, <laughs> There's a hot place in Hades for words that make me make the oink noise. Man, here's, man, I, we don't even have to talk about this because everyone's like, man, I know some of you have hardly ever told, like, said the word love because it's so powerful to you and everyone abuses it or whatever, and it's, it's, you don't even understand, it's so complex. Here's the issue. David Newton, I love tiramisu, I love hunting, I love Lord of the Rings, I love you all, I love my kids, and I love my wife. What does that mean? What a stupid word. Just walk into this with me because it's absurd in the English language that you can love the chiefs and you can love your wife. Hey babe, happy anniversary, I love you. Man, I love the chiefs. What a... Come on, it is ridiculous. And what it does is it creates this meaninglessness of words so that when we read it in, in this context, we have to start then, well the Greek says this and the Hebrews, we have to do all this work just to explain a simple concept. And those of you who have healthy relationships, who really love your spouse, you're like, no, duh, move past this. But a lot of us, 
struggle with love because we have no idea what it means because it's been abused in our life and our culture never defines it appropriately. And so we hear these ridiculous ideas like love is love, which doesn't mean anything because then love is whatever you personally make it. And so then the love for my wife is just as valuable as my love for tiramisu. And that's absurd. Unless maybe you're Italian, you really love tiramisu and you completely don't understand marriage. But it's just a frustrating concept. And so the word Jesus uses, does anyone know what it is, the Greek word? Agape. I said agape. It's uh, agape. Here we go. Uh, agape. Right. It's the Greek word for love. And I could talk forever about how the Greeks had, you know, five different words for love and several concepts for it. But all that does is just make us frustrated that they were better at talking about love than us. We'll move on. I don't want to hurt your heritage. But love is a frustrating word in our culture. In their culture, what does it mean? We've defined it before. Those of you who've been around, what is love? Two words we always say. Love is commitment and sacrifice. Man, you my people. You hear it. Come, no. I'm going to mess this up. Commitment and sacrifice. Oh, yeah, you like that? Commitment and sacrifice. Let's cross that T, dot that I. That's how we do things, apple pie. Uh, that's not a real rhyme. Anyway, uh, commitment sacrifice, that's love. Now, okay, now we're taking steps to understand it because my commitment sacrifice for tiramisu is very different than my commitment sacrifice for you all, and that's very different than my commitment sacrifice for my wife. There are things I do for my wife that I won't do for you all. Sorry, it's the way it is, right? And that's the way it should be. But the commitment sacrifice I have for my wife should reflect in some way the commitment sacrifice that the Lord has for us, right? It's how God has set up marriage and the church and all these things. Paul calls it a mystery. You can read about it later. This is the issue. So all of this idea of agape love, it, it's not about feelings. You see what I'm saying? So often we think of love as warm feelings. Love is the feeling I feel when I feel a feeling I've never quite felt before. That's how Nicholas Sparks would define love. That's how the Beatles define love. That's how everyone who writes love songs define love. It's a whole mantra group here, the whole romantic period in time. Just what happens. And so when you define love by commitment and sacrifice, then you start getting there. How, why do we do this? Because of Jesus. What did Jesus do? Jesus was so committed to his relationship with us. So actually, the Bible says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus was so committed to you, to us, he gave his life. He sacrificed everything for us. We get this from scripture. Love is commitment sacrifice. If you are struggling in your marriage, in your relationship with kids, in your relationship with work, your relationship with your parents, whatever it is, measure love with commitment and sacrifice. We take on this posture. So as we talk about this love, we've got to be thinking about, okay, commitment and sacrifice. These are actions. So now when you love your enemies, it's not just a warm feeling. I'm not lying in bed and I'm thinking, ooh, those people who drive terrible in the Aldi parking lot, I feel warm and fuzzy over them. That's the noise I make when I'm in love. Right? That's not what we're talking about. We're saying, no, no, no. I have specific commitment and sacrifice towards those people. You follow? Shake your head. Do you understand love? This is where we're going. It's so important because otherwise we're defining it by just all these feelings or all this, oh, you love people when you welcome them and tolerate them. No, because you don't love someone. We said it's so important to talk about this because all the time we hear things in these qualifying. What about the husband who abuses me? What about my kid who's on drugs, who's taking advantage of me and my family? Do I just love them and just take it? Because that's what Jesus, no, because that's not love. 
If you're committed to someone, you will make sacrifices for them, including doing what's best for them, even if it feels like it might harm them sometimes. If you have someone in your life that's addicted to drugs, quit enabling them. Quit giving them the avenue they need to hurt themselves. It might not feel like love to say, I'm not going to give you cash anymore. I'm going to step out of your life for a minute. But you need to love them enough to say, I'm going to do something that's sacrificially hard for me, sacrificially hard for you, because I love you that much. Jesus didn't go to the cross with all rainbows and honey drops and lemon pie. It was a hard thing for Jesus to die on the cross. And sometimes loving others is hard. You don't love Jesus by just, just taking it from your husband every time, by just taking it from your spouse. You love them by saying, we're, we're going to stop this because this isn't love. We're going to get legal people involved, we're going to get the church involved, and we're going to stop it. And I feel like we have to qualify that every Sunday because people twist these scriptures to justify things that aren't love. You don't love people by tolerating their sin, by tolerating things that are crushing them. You love them by speaking truth to them in love, which is commitment and sacrifice, which looks like making them a neighbor. And that's what Jesus says. You've heard it said to love your neighbors, but I say you love your enemies. Who are your enemies? Who's against you? Who are you against? Last week, just a few verses before this, we talked about people who dishonor us. Those people who say things against your views on Facebook, those people at school. your spouse when they step on you, your kids, those people at work, those people who dishonor you, those people who take advantage of you, the inconveniences in your life, those people who just move so slow, so slow in the checkout line when you're like, I got to go, and you've got coupons, and you have never clearly used a self-checkout in your life, and you just get so fired up. People who step on us. In your mind right now, Actually, you do this. Take out a piece of paper. Take out your phone. This is your free moment to look at your phone and not look at me for a minute. I want you to write enemies. Quit looking at me. Write something down. This is the time to reflect. I'm going to give you like 30 seconds on this. In fact, I'm going to pray over it right now. God, I pray that you would lay on our minds and hearts who our enemies are because we know that we are a culture of spinners and liars and we want to pretend like we love everyone and we don't. And you tell us to be perfect like you. And we're not, and we need you. And I pray by the power of your spirit, you would lay on our minds and our hearts individually, as, as family groups, as a church, people who we think are our enemies. Give us eyes to see, Father. Write down who your enemies are. Jesus says to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. To love your enemies is to treat them as yourself, to make them a neighbor, an insider. It's a rugged commitment to be with them as one who is for them to see Christ-likeness grow in them. That's what it means to love your enemies. You want to bring them in, you make them a neighbor, you sacrifice, you commit to them so that you see them have Christ-likeness grow in them. You see them as a fellow image bearer. In fact, in the kingdom economics, you don't even have the right to call them your enemy because they're not. They're your neighbor, and you treat them like a neighbor, as Jesus says. Maybe as we talk about that, you're like, man, I, I don't, nope, 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 can't do that. Here's step one. 
Pray for those who persecute you. We've said this a lot here, but I want you to hear this and know this. Prayer is an act of love. There are other times in Scripture where prayer is an act of war. We see that in Revelation and in a lot of cool places where, where prayer is also an act of love. It is very difficult, I would say impossible, to genuinely pray for someone that you hate. Because if you hate them, why would you stand before the throne of God on their behalf? You wouldn't pray for them. And I bet right now the enemies that you write down or that you refuse to write down right now because you don't want to deal with it, the enemies in your mind that God's placed on your heart, that you don't pray for them or you struggle to pray for them. Because why would we? They're our enemies. But Jesus steps in and says, no, you pray for them. Why? Because when you stand before the God of all creation on someone else's behalf, you have to admit to yourself and to God that this person was also created by God and that this person matters and they have some itty-bitty intrinsic value that you, even if you don't want to give them much value, you have to admit that they have some sort of value because you're praying for them. Why would you consult the Father on their behalf? It's an act of love. Step one this week, pray for your enemy. Pray for someone you struggle with. Pray for your coworkers. Pray for your family. Write them down. Be very specific with this. This is a personal thing. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for your enemies. This isn't a vague thing where you're praying for all the Muslims in the world because you believe that they're all the worst or whatever. No, no, no. Who is the specific person, people in your life that you need to be praying for? Prayer is an act of love. It's hard to hate those we pray for. Jesus gives really an interesting analogy. He pulls this information, it seems, from looking at weather patterns. So it's so interesting. Uh, we don't hear a lot of this. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard this preached on. I think it's just an interesting phrase. He says, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. What an interesting, just think about that for a minute. You know, people who really are awful people and they're farmers, just awful farmers. They got the blessing of rain for good crops, just like the good farmers. What a weird thought. And the people who really like warm sunshine, but they're just evil jerks, they got warm sunshine this summer. Bums. Interesting. And Jesus connects. He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. God is generous to all his creation. All of us have what we don't deserve. We're all sitting in God's compassion and God's grace. He warmly embraces us and holds us, even the worst of us. He's given us sunshine and rain and some sort of provision. And so Jesus concludes, if God is so generous and so loving towards the bad people, the unjust people, maybe we should pick up on that and think through what it means to love our enemies. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Tax collectors is the word you've got to say like slanderously because they're bad. Tax collectors. Not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only the brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. We love to love people who love us. This is just a challenge here, and it's worth acknowledging because in general, we are such a people of doing things that convenience us. I don't know if any of us authentically love someone without in some way thinking about how it comes back to benefit us. True, selfless, agape, whatever kind of love, I, I don't know if I'm even convinced that it exists apart from Christ because so many things, I don't even know how to assess that. Because as soon as I start assessing it, I find ways that the people I love come back to benefit me in some way. 
And that should lead us to this understanding that, man, we are not perfect as our Father is perfect. We love to love people like folks in our tribe, folks who are easy to love in return. I I was kind of moved as I was thinking through this, and we keep thinking about the scarcity mentality. If you missed it, scarcity mentality, God created us. He generously gave us all this good stuff, and we said, it's mine, and I don't want to lose it. I want to protect it, and so we started doing our own thing. Kill each other, fight each other, wars, sin, getting away. Man, everything to protect our own. This scares me. I don't think that God's going to take care of me. I don't think that my parents are going to take care of me. I don't think that, that my spouse is going to love me. We get the scarcity mentality, and we start sinning, and we push everyone away, and we try to control ourselves, and we break it. And then we don't want to admit that we broke it, so we get even more scared. We start holding it in. We fig leaf suit and all these things. Hold on. I think love's the same way. We don't want to agape love. We don't want to commit and sacrifice to people because at some point we've felt love. We all crave love. We've got this love in us, and we don't want to give that away. Because what if we love the bad people and they take advantage of us? What if I offer commitment and sacrifice to someone who's just going to hurt me, who's just going to crush me? Now you get Jesus' example. Jesus died for a lot of people who don't give a rip about him, who will blatantly spit in his face, who will say they care about him and then lie about it every day, deny him three times. Jesus' closest friends betrayed him except for the women. The women stuck around. That's an interesting story for another time. But Jesus had all this love he gave out, and it got taken advantage of. The Sermon on the Mount is not just about us. It's a reflection of who Jesus is. And now we start walking into this idea that it turns out we're still broken in heart and poor in spirit. And when Jesus says, you must be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect, this bears a heavy weight on us because we realize, well, we can't do that. And I could get up here and I could write, hey, teleos, right? This is the Greek word for, uh, Greek word for perfect. And it actually means mature and it means complete. And so when the Hebrews would have heard this and they would have, you know, Jesus wouldn't have spoke Greek, so he probably would have said it in Aramaic or Hebrew. The words that he would have said would have been more like mature. And so he was talking about being mature in your faith. I even have a quote from Scott McKnight that's super awesome. We've got a slide for it. Don't play it. We're going to skip that quote because forget about it. No matter how you interpret this word perfect, be perfect as your father is perfect, you can't reduce the blow that it makes you uncomfortable. And you immediately qualify something. You're hoping that I say something that you've already qualified in your mind. Because when I say be perfect, you say, oh, legalism, oh, grace, I'm not doing that. I can't be perfect. We just all dance around it because no one's perfect. And you type A people who are all buttoned up and get everything right. You're like, well, let me tell you how I've been perfect, but also don't judge me because of Jesus. But here's how I've been perfect. And we go round and round and round and we argue. You type A people are looking at me like, yeah, okay, stop it. Tense. Be perfect as your father is perfect. You know you can't do that. You know that the names you write down of people you're supposed to love, you can't do that. You're going to struggle. And you know that no matter how much you want to qualify and reduce what love is and twist what love is, ultimately you're biffing this. And I could read these verses five or six more times and it would make us more and more uncomfortable. Because we don't want to admit we have enemies. We don't want to admit that we don't love them. It's a struggle. And Jesus bears the words on us. It's hard. He says, be perfect as your father's perfect. And I believe Jesus is perfect in the way be perfect in how you love other people and how you welcome them. But the truth is, we're all broken in heart. 
We're all poor in spirit. We're going to mess this up. So what do we do? I've got three specific things that I think we do in response to this. And then we'll circle back around to how we're going to mess it up and how we need Jesus. But here's the three things. Confess who your enemies are. You, man, I can't hit this hard enough. You cannot possibly begin to follow Jesus. Raise your hand if you want to be a follower of Jesus. Great. All of you. Listen, you can't possibly follow Jesus' words here if you don't confess that you have enemies. Jesus assumes that you have enemies. I'm just going to make a lot of eye contact here. Because so many of us are just going to, we're just going to go out from here and say, nah, man. You grew up in the 60s and 70s. We love people, whatever. Or you grow up in my generation. Oh, man, love is love, bruh. You don't think, I don't know, I welcome everybody. Stop it. You don't. Confess who your enemies are. Please, may you take meaningful time to assess your heart this week and say, who are my enemies? Who do you think less of? Is it the poor people that you see holding signs when you drive by them on the road? You think, man, get a job, lazy bum. Is it the Democrats? The Republicans, the homosexuals, the liberal Christians who are ruining all of Christianity for the rest of us, Catholics, Muslims, immigrants, people in my family, the mean girls at school, the jock boys who are just always better than everyone else because they're strong, your boss, your coworkers. Confess who your enemies are. Don't, don't qualify to say, I don't have any enemies. There are people who you reduce in your mind. Go back and read what Jesus said about anger. There are people who you've made enemies in your mind. You're murdering them in your mind. Who are your enemies? As you confess for them, pray for them. Because prayer is an act of love. And, and I want to stop here and say, if none of this makes sense to you, and you think none of this bears its weight on you, maybe you don't know Jesus. Because this is hard for me. And I can tell for several of you this is a challenging thing. And maybe you have a heart posture that avoids these things because you don't want to give your life to Jesus. You don't want to trust him with everything you have. Maybe you need to give your life to Jesus and let him reveal to you the ways that you love his grace, the ways that you love actually what you want to love. You have self-love. You have selfish love. You don't love through commitment and sacrifice the way Jesus taught us to. The third thing you do is seek a posture of agape love. These are actions of commitment and sacrifice towards them, uh, towards our enemies, to make them neighbors. The whole goal here is to make people neighbors. This is what Jesus did. Read the narrative of Jesus. We're reading heavily on his teachings, but what did Jesus do? Jesus threw forgiveness parties to hang out with all the worst people. People that you wouldn't want to sit at your table. Let's be real. Because they might mess up my kids. They might corrupt my kids. They might, they might steal my stuff. Jesus hung out with those people. Those are the people he was spending time with. What are you doing to make your enemies your neighbors? What are you doing this week for that? When Jesus was asked the greatest command, what is, teacher, what is the great command for the law? Matthew 22. We keep coming back to this. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And that is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's a huge phrase, Jesus says. Literally everything you've grown up studying in the Old Testament, all the stuff you've given your life to, it all hinges on these two things. Love God with everything you have. Deuteronomy 6. Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus clearly believes that your neighbor is everybody. 
So who are your enemies? And why are they not sitting at your table with you? Why are they not getting cards from you to say, hey, I love you, I'm thinking about you. Why didn't you buy them a $10 Chick-fil-A gift card last week to tell them they're important? This isn't to bear weight and you say, look how much you're screwing this up, church. This is to give you ideas to think through. You have enemies. You need to confess those and you need to figure out how you love them, how you make them neighbors, how you commit to them because you believe that they are image bearers, that they were created in God just like you and no one is too far from the Savior because Jesus died for all of us. And they need to know Jesus. And they're not going to know Jesus if you don't love them. Maybe the reason they don't know Jesus is because the Jesus they knew know is the evil enemy language you keep communicating to them. Your boss knows that you don't like him. Your boss knows that you hate your job. Why would they care about your Jesus? Commitment sacrifice. It looks like a dying soldier on the cross. It looks like carrying cloak to carrying stuff extra miles. Looks like giving up your convenience, giving up your pride. As we close, it's important to note that Jesus still said, be perfect as your Father is perfect. And we're going to mess this up. And I hope that there's a weight of discomfort or confusion or difficulty with this that leads you to this posture. Go ahead and do this. I want to do it every week. Open your hands. The first thing Jesus said when he started this was in Matthew 5, 3. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're sitting there and you're not perfect as the Father's perfect, you're not loving people perfectly, you're not agapeing love people, you know it, welcome to being poor in spirit. And your response isn't to sit here and think, oh, woe is me, look how terrible I am, I've really messed up this whole thing, I'm the worst church member here, I'm the worst mother here, I'm the worst grandma here, I'm the worst whatever here. That's not your, your, that's not your response. Your response is to open your hand and say, Jesus, you say blessed are the poor in spirit, I'm poor in spirit. Because I'm far from perfect, I'm far from mature, I'm far from loving people the way you've called me to. And I've got this enemy, and I need to love them. I want to pray for them, and I want to figure out how to love them. During this time of response, there's a few things you can do. You can just sit here and worship with us and sing these songs. You can open your hands. That'd be great. Maybe you need to sit down or come up here or whatever and pray for your enemy. Maybe you need to say, now i got to release this, because this person is an enemy to me. And this isn't welcoming their abuse. This isn't welcoming their manipulation. Those of you who are in hairy situations with addicts and all these things, this isn't welcoming them to hurt you. This is learning how Christ tells you to love them. And that might mean staying away from them for longer. And you need Christ's strength to do that because you're not going to do it on your own. You're going to give in. You're going to struggle. Maybe you need to pray for that person right now. Maybe you need to ask God, show me specifically how to love them this week. What card do I send them? What text message? What phone call? How do I invite them to eat dinner with my family to let them know you're not an outsider, you're my neighbor? Church, may we have that posture. May outsiders be welcome in here as neighbors. May we welcome strangers and immigrants and aliens and all the, the things that the Bible tells us, and may they feel like neighbors amongst us because we love them as Christ loves them. And may that love point them to being like Christ, just like we're walking towards I'm going to have you stand as we start our response time. If you want to give your life to the Lord, come talk to me. If you want to join the church, get baptized, whatever God's laid in your heart, this is your time to respond. God, thank you for this opportunity to worship you. Thank you for, uh, for your word. I pray by the power of your spirit you would help us make sense of loving our enemies.
I pray that through your spirit, God, that right now you would enlighten us to who our enemies are, each one of us individually in our family group, that we would know who are these enemies, who are these people that we make less of, and how do we treat them as neighbors, God? Give us wisdom on that. May our church be marked as people who welcome outsiders and treat them as neighbors so that they see your love and know you and trust you with their lives just as we're doing. God, guide us in, in all the hairy circumstances of, of making sense of that. I pray for all the people in difficult situations with addiction and manipulation and, and, and hard relationships with abuse. I pray that you would give wisdom in that. Show them what it looks like to show love in the difficult ways that don't make sense to us sometimes. I pray for the people who need to give their life to you. I pray that you would give us boldness to welcome you and to trust you. May all of us have a posture being 